looking at Genesis 37 tonight. Um, we're going to keep right on rolling. I had a, a, a dream. I have a dream. <laughs> and that would be before uh, summer comes at the end of May, we could possibly, I thought about this today. I shouldn't even say it. I shouldn't even bring it up. It's not going to be appropriate because y'all might hold me to it. But there is the possibility we could be finished with Genesis before the summer <laughs> starts. I, you know, even as I say it, there's no chance, really. But I've thought about it, and I was like, man, we could get this done. As we kind of come to the end, if you look there in chapter 37, verse 2, you see it says, these are the generations of Jacob. That has been the marker for the different sections of Genesis all the way throughout. There's 10 sections. You had these are generations of Adam, these are generations of Seth, these are generations of Noah, these are the generations of Abram. It keeps on going all the way down. Isaac, Esau, we saw that last time we were here. And so you have these as kind of setting off these different sections. This is the last section of Genesis, starting in chapter 37. The generations of Jacob. As we talked about, this is kind of the end of that patriarchal period. The Bible constantly refers to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So it kind of stops there. And now Jacob has all these children, and they are going to become the heads of the tribes of Israel. And so we're looking into this section, kind of going to talk about those, those children and how this comes about. And so Genesis 37 begins the last section of it. And one of the things we've learned, and we, we talked about this before um, many times. We ended, I think, our last time together talking about how everything points to Jesus. So all of this is teaching us about who Christ is and what he's coming to do even. And so we, we look at that. But then at the same time, there's some things we can learn. I was, I was running through uh, some of the commentary just reading this, and one um, commentator, James Montgomery Boyce, was talking about uh, the unfolding of faith is what he says in Genesis. And so when we look at these characters throughout, and he did 10 of them, eight of them, excuse me. And I, I thought it was kind of helpful. He talks about how you start learning about faith when you look at these characters throughout Genesis. With Adam, he said, you see the nature of faith. Adam believed an unsupported promise, right? So even, even in believing, he just believed the promise of God. And that's the nature of faith, is believing in the promises of God. When you talk about what is faith, faith at its very essence is believing in the promises of God, holding fast to the promises of God. Adam teaches us that. You had Abel. You see the basis of faith. He believed in, in salvation by a blood sacrifice. Abel brought his sacrifice before the Lord. And he brought the first one of his, of his flock, right? The, the, the nicest of his, of his flock there he brought. He believed in a blood sacrifice. That's the, that's the basis of faith. We can have faith because of a blood sacrifice on our behalf. We just talked about Jesus being that for us. We see with Enoch, the walk of faith, how he walked so closely with God in chapter, chapter 5 that the Lord took him. Y'all remember that passage and how that's what it looks like to walk with faith and to walk after the Lord. We see with Noah, the perseverance of faith, 120 years. Remember, it hadn't rained up until that point. Some of y'all forgot about this story because it was a couple years ago, but Noah, <laughs> Noah worked on the ark without it knowing what rain was and, and, and worked on the ark in the middle of the desert, right? 
He worked on this for 120 years. And he kept going. Why? Because he believed what God would say. So he persevered even in faith. Abraham, the obedience of faith, even obedience to a great sacrifice from leaving his land in the Ur of the Chaldeans and going to another place all the way to Isaac, going up on the hill and having to raise up his, his knife to the point of sacrificing his son as the Lord did until he stopped him. You saw the obedience of faith in Abraham. With Isaac, you see the power of faith. He, from, he, turned, he turned to the Lord from, and, and turned his desires uh, to God, toward him. Jacob, you see the discipline of faith. God disciplined until he finally corrected. With Jacob, you know, he had to, the Lord had to work at it to get him in. How the Lord disciplines us, as Hebrews, Hebrews uh, 12 says, the Lord disciplines those he loves and brings them into correction. And so we see that. And then finally, we get to the end and we're going to look at Joseph. And Joseph will be what he called the triumph of faith. How Joseph would rise from slavery to power there in Egypt. And whenever we consider this, looking at the life of Joseph, what we'll find when you come to Joseph is he's quite different from the other characters here that we've walked through. The other characters have their ups and downs, remember? And their downs are pretty rough downs. And so they have those ups and downs, but Joseph is not. Joseph is faithful. Joseph is following after the Lord. He's being obedient. Now, Joseph had this real tough, tough thing he could not get over. He had a terrible, he could not read the room. You know what I'm saying? Uh, that was his, well, was his biggest mistake. It's like at some point you want to say, all right, just chill. You know, maybe you want to take that coat off because he didn't get everybody one. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> he wasn't able to quite read the room sometimes, but he was always faithful. And he's faithful to the very end. And it will be because of his faithfulness that the people of God, not just, not just Joseph would rise to power, but the people of God would find a home even in Egypt and would be prospered there. It will be because of his faithfulness. And we see how when we are faithful, hopefully looking at the life of Joseph, how God will bring his faithful home. And it may not be the easiest of roads, Joseph's wasn't. But being faithful, even in the midst of, of difficulty, even in the midst of harshness, the Lord says he brings his people home. And Joseph becomes an example of that. And so here in chapter 37, I want us to, we can look through this chapter and then we'll learn uh, a few things from Joseph in his life. Um, and, and then we'll kind of set it up. Now, all of this narrative, by the way, is not just about Joseph. Chapter 38 is going to be, a, be about Ju Judah that we'll see next week. But in, in 37, we start with Joseph. These are the generations of Jacob, and he goes immediately to Joseph. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing, pasturing, not pastoring, all right? Y'all got that? He didn't have a church yet. But he was watching after the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Now these, remember, uh, uh, Jacob had four, had two wives and two concubines, if you will. So he had, he had um, Leah, and then he had Rachel, and then he had these two, Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report from them to their father. Y'all know what that means. Joseph tattled is what Joseph did. Joseph is out there pasturing with his brothers and he comes in and says, you won't believe what they're doing. Reuben cussed is probably what he said. You know what I'm saying? 
Something to that effect. Something to that effect. Levi, you remember what he did? He's doing it again. You know, that kind of thing. And so here is Joseph. Joseph brings a bad report to their father. And then verse 3 tells us something important. Remember Jacob was completely, was, his, his parents gave him an example of partisanship amongst the children. Right? And so, as my grandma used to always say, each of you has a special place in my heart. Right? You know what I'm saying? That? But that's not how, how Isaac and, and, and Rachel had done. I mean, Isaac and Rebecca had done. Rebecca loved Jacob. Isaac loved Esau. They had this partisanship. And now Jacob is kind of parenting in this same way. Even though he's got all these kids, Jake, Joseph is the one he loves more than any other of his sons. Now, understand here, too, uh, Joseph, as it says, uh, Jacob was in old age as he comes along, so he loved that kid the most. So that was that. But, but also understand that, that Joseph was the firstborn of Rachel, right? Am I saying this right? I'll get all my ladies mixed up sometimes. Joseph was the firstborn of Rachel. And Rachel had been barren for some time. Rachel was the one Joseph loved. From the moment he got off the desert, saw her over at the well, he wanted her. And he was willing to go and do whatever it took to get her. And he proved that. He proved that by working seven years only to get snookered by Laban. And Laban gave him Leah. And, and, and we won't bring up anymore that Leah's the ugly one. We passed that. I think she's dealt with that most of her time. But that's what the Bible says. And so he, he gives her Leah. And then he comes up and he works another seven years just because he loves Rachel, right? Leah has a lot of children. Leah is coming along and having children, uh, ha having, having all these, these boys that are coming here. And Leah's doing it. But Rachel was one that didn't have children for a while until later on she had Joseph. He was finally born. And of that, surely he loved Joseph. Surely this is my, the wife I love the most, right? This is the one I, I truly wanted from the very beginning. And now finally she's given me a son. Now, Rachel had another child, Benjamin. But who knows, for Benjamin, it may have been hard for Jacob to look upon Benjamin. Because if you remember, Rachel died in childbirth when she had Benjamin. And so now Joseph's this one that's left. And he's the favorite. He's probably the one that catered to dad a little bit. He's probably the one that hung out with him. He's probably the one that did that. And so Joseph, even you can see it, even before it tells us that Joseph was the favorite of Jacob, it tells us that Joseph tattled on his brothers. And so surely his dad loved him. And so here it says, Israel, Israel, of course, the name of, of Jacob having been changed, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. Every time I see or hear that verse, y'all know the first thing I think about? I, ain't, I don't ever, I'm not thinking about Dolly Parton. What in the world <laughs> would make y'all think I'm thinking about Dolly Parton? Cut them in because my mama made for me. I got it. I got it. I wasn't now I'm thinking about Dolly Parton. <laughs> thinking about Dolly Parton. Good grief. No, it's greater than that. I can remember the flannel graph. Y'all know the flannel graph? Oh, man, I, was, I learned every Bible story on the flannel graph. Y'all don't remember the flannel graph. Now we got things called computers and screens, you know? But the flannel graph was that board that you put it. And I always got to be the one. I was a preacher's kid, so a little special. But always got to be the one that put the coat of many colors on Joseph. That was my favorite thing to do. 
So we remember what that looks like, right? And this thing, of course, as it looks, as you, as it lays out, this was a robe, um, as it's kind of talked about, uh, and even understood in translation of long sleeves, long flowing. This was a nice robe, a coat of many colors that would have been very expensive. And so he made him a robe of many colors. And what did Joseph do? That joker put it on. You know what I'm saying? He put it on and started trotting in front of his brothers. Hey, how do y'all like this? Dad made it for me. Y'all can hear him saying it, right? He says it right here. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Joseph uh, was one suffering from his dad's favoritism. He was also, as I said, suffering from the fact that he couldn't read the room. And so Joseph is not only getting the coat, he's putting it on. He's, he's tattling on his brothers. He's saying, look what dad made for me. And his brothers hated him for it. Now, remember, his brothers could, could, could do some pretty dastardly deeds. Do y'all remember back in chapter 34 what happened whenever their daughter or their sister was defiled, right? And you had that passage where Simeon and Levi went off on those people, even killing many of them. So we already get a glimpse of the brothers. And so here is Joseph kind of poking the bear, if you will, with his fancy coat on, tattling on his brothers, wearing it out in front of him. But it doesn't just end there. It doesn't just end there. Now, Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, that's where he messed up again. If I'm going to have this dream, I may not, I may not handle this right. They hated him even more because here's what he said. Hey, guys, guess what? I had a dream, and here's what I dreamed. We were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. He may have pulled one of the brothers aside. Man, you ain't going to believe this dream. But instead, with his real nice robe on, having just tattled on them to the dad and they got in trouble, now he's saying what? Guess what? I had a dream. Y'all are all going to bow down to me. Y'all can see this is not going to end well. Then he dreamed another dream. And told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his, to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, Son, hush. That's not, that wasn't it, but he probably should have. What is the dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept this saying in his mind. Now, Ultimately, I think what we can see here is these dreams, as we will find out, are from the Lord, right? Uh, they're from the Lord because this is exactly what's going to happen. His brothers will bow down to him. And at the end, I don't want to tell you all what happens, but you probably should have already read Genesis at some point. At the end, when they bow down to him, it's almost like they go, oh, this is what he was talking about. It triggers this response from them, right? That's what he meant. But not only that, his brothers bow down to him. But here in this second dream gives us the idea that it's not just his brothers that will bow down, but it is all the nations will come and bow down to him. And ultimately, that's exactly what will end up happening, right? Everything is going to bow down to Joseph. Why? Because he's going to go to Egypt. The Lord's going to give him a couple more dreams. He's going to figure out what it means. He's going to 
put back some food and during the greatest famine is only going to be Egypt because of what God has done through Joseph that's going to have enough food so that people can survive. And so everybody's going to come to Egypt and bow down hoping, hoping that food will be given to him. This is what Joseph's even dreaming about now. Joseph, not reading the room real well, tells his brothers all of this. Here's how it works. Here's what's bowing down. Now his brothers went to pasture, pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are, you not your, are, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. Uh, you know what it takes to commit. You gotta, the main thing you have to do to commit like a crime is, uh, sometimes is, is time and opportunity, right? Up until this point, Joseph's been protected there at the house with his dad, but now he's going out. And here it comes. He heads out to them. Now, just to show, I think, a verse that kind of shows Joseph's nature in himself, not in a bad way, but verse 15. And a man found him wandering in the fields. <laughs> I think that's funny, actually. Here's Joseph. He's just out there going, where brothers? <laughs> you know, where y'all at? What's going on? You know, he's just out there wondering. He can't even find them. He's got no sense really even to look and find where they are. So it kind of gives you this idea of Joseph uh, in this vulnerability play, vulnerable place here as he heads out to his brothers. And some random guy finds him out in the middle of a field wandering around. What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers. And he said, tell me, please, where are they pastoring the flock? And a man said, they have gone away for I heard them say, let's go to Dotham. So that's in Alabama. So Joseph <laughs> went after his brothers and found them at Dotham. And so ultimately, Joseph's out there wandering around. He doesn't even have the good sense to take the coat off, probably. He has already told them the dreams. They're hating him all the more. And now he finally finds them, not because he's got this great tracking ability. He finds them just simply because some man is wandering through and, and says, where are you going? I know where your brothers are. Go to Dotham. He heads to Dotham and he finds them there. And as soon as he finds them there, they have the opportunity. They conspire to take care of Joseph. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to him, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes the dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Verse 21, but when Reuben, who I think is the oldest one, Reuben, right? When Reuben said to them, shed no blood Throw him into the pit. By the way, Reuben's got a, he's, we should know him from a sandwich, sandwich named after him. And the one that has some sense here, but not good enough sense not to, to, to throw him away. It's, it's not as if Reuben came up with a better plan. Instead of killing him, let's put him into slavery. You know? And so he says, uh, Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into one of the pits here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him. Uh, out of the hand of the restore to him to the father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him off the robe, the robe of many colors, told y'all he's still wearing it, and they threw him into a pit. The pit was empty and there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites 
And let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. The Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up, lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes. He returned to his brothers and said, they, the boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Reuben, being the oldest, would be the one responsible to report back to his dad. The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? And then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped, it, dipped the robe in blood, and they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, mourned for all his sons many days. All his sons and his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him into Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Now, the intensity of this, I think, can't be missed on us because it's going to come back around, right? At this point in Genesis 37, at this point, all of the brothers and Jacob believe that Joseph is what? Dead. It shouldn't surprise us then when years later, some 20 years later, and they show up to Egypt and they see a grown Joseph sitting on the throne in Egypt that they don't recognize him. It shouldn't come to any surprise because in their mind, he's dead. It's over. It's done with. And so ultimately, as this story unfolds, we can't forget this, right? We can't forget that they have no idea that he's still alive, that what they're doing and what they attempted to do in this they didn't even know. And so ultimately, Judah having sold him, all of this had gone on. Joseph heads off to Egypt. We'll find out what happens at Potiphar's house and other things and how it continues. Several things then we, we want to learn from Joseph. One, ultimately what we see here is the providence of God. I kind of told this story almost like it's happenstance or chance. And I did that on purpose. It's kind of like some of the other stories in Scripture, you know, like, like Ruth just happens to glean in Boaz's field. You know what I'm saying? Or, or other things that go on that just kind of happen to happen. And so you think, oh, wow, that's a great coincidence. It just kind of happened. Like this man just happening to find him to tell him where the brothers are and other things. But when we read Scripture, we realize over and over again, none of this is by happenstance or chance. That God is at work. And God is doing something here. And even when the brothers seek to kill Joseph, and even when they seek to sell him off, and even when they seek to put him to death, even when they're seeking evil here, God is working out a different plan. So their intentions are evil, and they'll have to answer to those evil intentions, but God's plan overrules their evil intentions. God is going to work out his plan. This is the doctrine that we call providence, that God, as some have said, there's a, a many, you may have heard of, of a good many of our forefathers even, uh, referred to as deists, the idea that there is a God who created everything, but that God who created everything is not 
is not working with his creation. In other words, he just spun the earth, set all the natural laws in motion, spun everything, got everything going, and now he's backed out. And what takes over is natural law. And everything that he set up now is running, and it's all happenstance and chance. That's not the way we understand Scripture. Not only has God spoken all of the earth into existence and made each and every one of us, he is watching over the minute details of every single thing that happens. Now, some people look at that and go, well, that's hard because there's some difficult things we see. There's some, there's some struggles we get. Why do bad things happen to good people? How do you deal with the problem of evil? And all I'll simply say to you tonight, and we'll talk about those things as we move along, all I'll simply say is consider the opposite. Let's say God's not in control. Let's say he's not watching over everything. If that's the case, then we all fall into utter hopelessness, right? We all disappear into like, there's no purpose in anything. God's not in control of all things. And promises that he made to us no longer stand. When he tells us that he's working out all things for good, how much do we hold on to those promises? Everything's working out for good. Well, if God's not in control of all things, then how can he work it all out for good? Is that really true? So when we read the scripture, this doctrine of providence teaches us that even when things look terrible and awful, God is intimately involved with everything. Now that means sometimes we go, I don't know why he does it that way, because I don't. His ways are not my ways. My ways are not his ways, right? But at the, still, still at the same time, even though he slay me, Job, Job says what? I still will trust him. He's working it all out. And so one of the great verses in scripture happens in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. One of the great verses, and it'll kind of stay, uh, I'm giving it to you this week, because it'll kind of stay on our tongues and in our minds as we move through this Joseph story. As, as Joseph is reunited with his brothers, they recognize who he is, they go through the process, incredible story, they go through the process, Joseph is speaking to them. Joseph said to them, do not fear for I, verse 19 of Genesis 50, do not fear for I am in the place of God. Verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And, and if you don't have that underlined in your Bible, you should, because that verse is incredibly important. That what happens in the world and in life and everything else, people may mean it for evil. God's going to use it for good. And if you don't understand it here in the Joseph passage, maybe you would surely understand it in Acts chapter 2. Because in Acts chapter 2, Peter begins to preach on the day of Pentecost. And Peter looks at all of those in the city, and what does he say? This Jesus whom you crucified. God raised from the dead. You see what he says? This one whom you put to death, you sent him to the cross. You were behind him. You were the one screaming out, give us Barabbas, crucify him. This one whom you sent to the cross, God raised up. In other words, you made a ruling and you will be held accountable for that ruling. But in the end, God overrules your ruling. And God's overruling it is always greater than whatever ruling we can make, right? And for me as a person walking through this life, it's good for me to know that I may not understand how everything works, but what I want to hold on to is that everything's working out for good because God's in control. God's in control of it. 
And so here in Joseph's story, there's nothing happening by happenstance or chance. Yes, Joseph may not read the room real well. He probably should have handled the dreams a little bit differently, right? He probably should have done something. There may have been a point he probably should have took that coat off. I mean, who wants to wear it all the time? He's surely that should be the case. But at the end of the day, all of that is working together, even through the hatred of his brothers to sell Joseph off into slavery for him to be taken to Potiphar's house, for him to go from Potiphar's house into Pharaoh's house and in Pharaoh's house, the Lord to use him to rise up to the number two position in all of Egypt and him to take care of his brothers safely there, right? All of that is working out. God is in control. God is in control. And that's what we mean by providence, that God has not just spun the earth and left it, that he's working out even the details of things. In some ways, even when difficult things happen, even when we get bad news, right? In some ways, there's a little glimpse of comfort. It may not be right away, but it's coming to us. There's a little glimpse of comfort if we know that God's still in control. He's still in control. And then Joseph's story becomes a beautiful testimony of God's providential control over all things. Nothing's happening outside of his control. And no matter how bad it may look, what God, what they meant for evil, God means for good, Joseph says. Joseph says, that's important that we'll learn throughout this entire story. The second one, Joseph becomes a beautiful, what we call type of Christ, right? In other words, he becomes a little depiction. We saw this with, with Cain and Abel. With Abel, here was a shepherd who was a priest bringing his sacrifice, who was hated by his brother, and when his brother hated him, he rose up against him and killed him. We know of another shepherd priest who's hated by his brothers and who was killed by them, right? We know, y'all know what I'm got? That's Jesus. And so you can see these types, what we call types. You can see these glimpses of, of a Messiah figure, one who will come. And that's why I say all of these things are pointing us towards Jesus. And Jesus says they're all pointing us there. Joseph becomes that for us. I mean, even in the fact that he's beloved by his father, he's sent by his father to his brothers. He's sold for silver, right, into, into to, to bondage and slavery. He rises from slavery to reign. He becomes the the savior of the world and his brothers by going to Egypt and produce and say all of these things are just what Christ will do. Now, now Joseph does them on a smaller scale. Joseph, uh, Jesus is the greater Joseph ultimately, but all of these things point to us. In fact, I was reading today, A.W. Pink, when his little gleanings in Genesis, his little book, which is about 1500 pages, he has 101, 101 parallels to Christ Jesus in the Joseph story. Now, some of them may be a stretch, you know, but I told y'all before, when I get to heaven, the last thing I want is the Lord to look at me and say, you didn't preach me enough. You know what I'm saying? Let's, let's find him. And ultimately with Joseph, you have 101 parallels that Pink says. Other, other authors do the same thing. One of my favorite books is a collection of sermons, and I'll probably quote this as we go through Joseph by Octavius Winslow. First of all, the name Octavius is glorious. I would encourage you young mothers and fathers to use that name Octavius. I mean, you can call him Octo. You can call him, you know, something. Uh, something's good, and that's a great name. Octavius Winslow. It's, it's one that doesn't need to die out. Octavius Winslow preached a series of sermons on Joseph, 
and he calls it the unfolding mystery. And so he lays it out and he points everything, how Joseph is pointing us to Jesus. Beautiful sermons. Great book. Here we see that Joseph is this one who's going to come. And even we see it, like I said, in those dreams. Already those promises come. His brothers will bow down to him. The nations will come and bow down to him. That's what Christ will ultimately happen. All of his brothers will bow down. The nations will come and bow down to him. He becomes this savior. Third, he's going to fulfill the promise of a great nation by whom all the nations will be blessed. So as I said to you, Genesis chapter 12, there's a couple of key passages in Genesis that I kind of uh, hang some things on. First of all, I, I, I say the, the thesis of all of Scripture is Genesis 3.15. made that argument. It's what we call the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. It's right after Adam and Eve fall into sin, and, and, and the Lord looks at the serpent and said, uh, I will put enmity between you and the seat, the seat, your offspring and the offspring of the woman, and you shall bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And so, as I've said, that thesis is what Scripture is all about. Who is going to be the one that's going to come and crush the head of the serpent? That's who we're looking for every page of Scripture. Who is the great serpent crusher that Genesis 3.15 told us about that will finally, where it says in, in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan, right? The one who disturbed God's peace, Satan himself, will ultimately be crushed by this one who will come to restore God's peace. So who is that thesis of scripture? And then how does, the, how does that come about? You see in other passages, but one in particular, especially for the Old Testament, you see it in the promises in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3 to Abraham. I'm going uh, to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land, and I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, right? So I'm going to make you a great nation, give you a land, and I'm going to bless. Now, that becomes now what happens. And so as we look throughout the scripture, that first part is what we're talking about right now. I'm going to make you a great nation. So Genesis is telling us how this comes about. He goes and he pulls one guy out of the earth of the Chaldeans. The Lord just says, that's my guy. Chooses Abram. Says, you're the one. I'm going to start a nation from you. Comes out, gives him the promises. He has Isaac. He has Isaac, which is clearly the son of promise because Abraham and Sarah were so old, they were as good as dead when they had him. God did it. And then from there, Isaac has, has uh, Jacob and Esau, remember? And now, now Jacob is the one who, whom he loved, and Esau is the one who rejected the birthright, and he becomes the Edomites. They populate over here. Here comes Jacob, and now Jacob's having all these children, these 12 sons, and they'll be the 12 tribes of Israel. That's what we're reading about here. Now, how does God preserve these tribes? He does so by taking them into Egypt because of what Joseph is going to do, taking them into Egypt. They grow strong in Egypt. And we're maybe get to the end of Genesis here in the next couple months. But from Genesis, and it would work perfect, right? Because if we get to the end of Genesis at the end of May, and then we don't meet again throughout the summer and come back in the fall, which is what we'll do, between Genesis and Exodus is 400 years. So those few months will be just like 400 years. We'll be back and see y'all soon. And so you get here. He gets them. You know, when you read Genesis, 
It starts, it tells you what a mess people make of things, right? What we have made of things. It starts in a God-blessed, glorious garden. God's people placed in the garden, having everything they need, walking with the Lord, at peace with him. And it ends in a foreign land, in a famine, where their only hope is this one who has listened to God, right? So it begins in a God-blessed place, and it ends in a God-cursed foreign land. And so you see what trouble it is. But even in that, even in that, you know that God is still making his nation great. And by the time we get to Exodus chapter 1, you know what Exodus chapter 1 says? The people of Israel had what? Become a great nation. They'd become a great nation. What happens in Exodus is we start moving to what I think is that second part of those promises. They'd become a great nation. Now we got to get to the land. And so ultimately he raises up another leader, Moses, who's going to take the people out of Egypt and back to the promised land. So you see this become an outline. Ultimately, if you want to take it to the next further, that idea of blessing, I think, is going to become through God's appointed king. So by the time they get to the land at the end of Joshua, they're in the land. Joshua says they in it, they occupy it. They don't get everybody out they should, but they still are in it and they occupy it. And then what's the next book after Joshua? Judges. Who is going to bring about the blessing and peace of God for the people? God says you don't need a king. They keep screwing up, doing stupid stuff. He raises up judges. They say we do need a king. God, they picked their own king. He ain't the right king. God finally chooses a king for him. And when David gets on the throne, the blessing of God comes, right? Until you realize it's not the one. David's not the serpent crusher. We're still looking. And even when those kings fail, the blessing goes away. It comes... In that, you see how all of the Old Testament is laid out, I believe, with these three promises in mind. God is working all of this out, fulfilling the promises that this great nation will be established. This great nation will be established, and it will be blessed. God is doing all of this. That's what we read about in Joseph's story, how God providentially will take these brothers children of Jacob, and establish them into a great nation. And what you'll find when you read this is the incredible, persistent, really indescribable grace of God. Really. How he pursues these brothers. How he goes after them. And even when they do stupid stuff over and over again, he still is there. He's still watching over them. He's still making sure they have what they need. None of them die. Even Jacob himself doesn't die till he sees Joseph again. And ultimately, we see how God is working all of this out to establish what it is. And his great and glorious mercy and grace is seen. The Lord can use even evil human deeds to fulfill his plan of salvation. And that's really part of the story of Scripture. Remember, who's the main character? God is. But we all play a role. And in that role that we play, usually is to screw everything up. But I truly believe at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, there will be zero. You know, hear when I say when I say zero, y'all know what zero means. There will be zero glory left for any one of us. We will look at this and we'll go. 
We are standing before the throne and the Lamb. And we are singing with one voice, salvation belongs to him. To the throne and the lamb. And we will be confident at that point. There is not one single thing we added to this. We are only there because God has brought us safely home. God had brought us safely there. There won't be any confusion at that time. There won't be any of us going, well, I did have that one really good day. You remember that smart decision I made? Won't be any of that. We will all know that we will be safely there only by the grace, protection, providence, provision of a good and faithful God to us. That's how we get there. That's what we find in the Joseph story. Let's pray together. Father, help us to always trust you. Triumph in our faith just as Joseph did. All for your glory and all for your name. Thank you for Christ Jesus who brings us and will bring us safely home. You are good to us. So God, we praise you and we ask that we always remain faithful. In Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. Thank you all so much. We'll see you Sunday morning.